Andrew Young celebrates a big birthday. I'm Ed Hula. Welcome to this edition of the Around the Rings podcast. Today, we're so pleased to have with us Andrew Young, the chance to talk to Andrew Young on the occasion of his 90th birthday. That's being marked here in Atlanta with events leading up to the big day on March the 12th. As mayor of Atlanta in 1997, Young gave the green light for Billy Payne and a group of friends to launch a bid for the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. The campaign obviously successful and in part due to Andrew Young's international connections as former UN ambassador, as well as his important links to the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Young was with King in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968 when King was assassinated. Born in New Orleans, Louisiana, Young was a divinity student, pastored at churches in Alabama and Georgia before settling in Atlanta in the early 60s to become one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement. And now I think uh, safe to say, uh, now it's elder statesman. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador Young, welcome to welcome to the podcast here. And uh, you, you've, 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 you've reached uh, a lot of milestones in your life and uh, this one this week is certainly not one to be, not one to be missed. Well, you know, my grandmother used to say, boy, you've been wonderfully blessed. <laughs> and I, 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 I know now what she means. <laughs> in, uh, in 1997, you were in your second term as mayor of Atlanta when, uh, Billy Payne. Was really? It was really 87. 87. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. 1987, Billy Payne and a group of friends came to you to make a pitch for Atlanta to bid for the Olympic Games. Uh, you, you were a skeptic, I believe, at the outset, but you finally made a decision to give them the green light to move forward. Why'd you well, do my, that? My staff was skeptical because the Olympics had had some rough times. In fact, I think by 1988, uh, Montreal was still $700 million in debt or something like that, some phenomenal um, number. And um, so everybody on the staff said, look, you've had two successful uh, turks terms as mayor. You've got another year or so to go. Uh, the last thing you will need to do is leave the city in debt. Uh, but what they didn't realize was that my awakening to race relations, to life, occurred when I was four years old in New Orleans, Louisiana. I lived in the I live right in the middle of the block uh, with an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on another. The headquarters of the Nazi party was on the third corner. And so I still remember at four years old, 1936, walking by the uh, German-American Bund house where everybody was highly Hitler and there were no air conditioning. So the windows were open and you could singing, hear them singing Deutschland, Uber Alles, and uh, they were all in their black shirts 
and my father uh, said to me, uh, you know better from Sunday school that all, you know that God created of one blood all the nations of the earth. Uh, they don't want to accept that. And they are white supremacists. And he said, uh, you, you need to understand that white supremacy is a sickness. Uh, that's not your problem. That's their problem. And you, you need to basically don't ever let them get you upset. Uh, in fact, his mantra was, don't get mad, get smart. He said, if you, and I'm four now. <laughs> uh, and he's saying, if you uh, in a fight and you get angry, you sure to lose the fight because when you get angry, the blood rushes from your head to your fist to your feet and you'll do something emotional and stupid. And he took me to, uh, he took me to the uh, movie tone news uh, downtown at the Orpheum theater uh, to see the Jesse Owens, 36 Olympics, and when Jesse Owens won the 100-meter dash, Hitler got mad and walked out. And my father said, now that was his attempt to insult Jesse Owens. But Jesse did not pay any attention to Hitler. That was Hitler's problem. Jesse Owens' problem was that he had three ball races to run. And he paid no attention to Hitler he just went on and won three more gold medals, uh, making a total of four. And he said if he had gotten mad or upset uh, in international competition, he might not have been able to do that. So don't ever. And so my, my first lessons about life were tied to the Olympics. And needless to say, I always wanted to go to the Olympics. Um, but in New Orleans, I had to watch the track meets on Saturday uh, in City Park, and the white kids could run, but they wouldn't let us even in the park. But I would get the papers on Sunday and look at their times, and then I'd get out on the street <laughs> and let my, look, my brother tie me to prove to myself that I could run faster than they could run. So it had, the Olympics really shaped my life as much as anything. I wanted to, when I went to seminary, I was planning to go to New York to train for the 52 Olympics when my pastor superintendent uh, said to me that uh, he needed me to go to Marion, Alabama. And I said, well, I'm already committed to go to New York. I have a job. I have a place to train with the Pioneer Track Club. He said, yes, but everybody wants to go to New York. If you don't go to New York, uh, somebody will take your place. And there will always be an Olympics, whether you're in it or not. But if you don't... Um, 
if you don't go to this little church in Alabama, we'll probably lose it. It'll probably close down. And um, I went to the little church in Alabama and didn't go to New York. And that's where I ended up meeting my wife. <laughs> it's almost providential that my wife and Martin Luther King's wife and Ralph Abernathy's wife went to the same high school in Marion, Alabama. Now, none of us knew each other, uh, but they had grown up together in this little town of about 3,000. And um, they had all gone to colleges up north because there was a lot of Quaker influence in that little high school. Um, and they went to colleges. Beretta went to Antioch, where they founded the Women's Strike for Peace. Jean went to uh, Manchester College, a Church of the Brethren College in Manchester, Indiana, where New Testament nonviolence was a required course your freshman year. And so um, it's a good thing I went to uh, Marion instead of going to New York. Follow your Olympic dream. Now you got to, you got to maybe create your Olympic dream, make it a reality in Atlanta and, as mayor. Uh, well, and by that time, though, see, um, well, that was the other thing about Gene and Coretta. They were both, both of those schools were international schools in many ways, colleges. And the first summer after I went to Marion, Alabama, Gene got a scholarship to go to Europe uh, to work in refugee camps uh, in Germany and Austria and to travel around Europe. Uh, I was in seminary and um, I decided I was going to pay my own way and go with her. So um, we spent the summer traveling around Europe in 1953. Uh, and um, my, my various connections in the church uh, had given me oh, several opportunities to travel to Europe, uh, to the Caribbean, to Latin America. Um, and um, by the time I uh, got involved in the civil rights movement, I was going all over. Uh, and so when I looked at the list of countries that had a vote, um, there were 85 countries on the list of uh, the Olympic Committee. And I had connections, I thought, with 55 of 85 counties in countries. And so for me, it was, it was just a, an opportunity to fulfill a dream um, that had been deferred. Uh, and I, I was certain that we could uh, win the Olympics. I didn't know how we'd pay for it, but I went to see Tom Bradley in, New York, in Los Angeles. The mayor, mayor of Los Angeles, Angeles at the time. And he said the best thing that happened to him was that the city government didn't want anything to do with the Olympics. So he and 
Peter Uberoff decided to form a nonprofit corporation and raise the money privately and not use any government money. Uh, now, they were using the facilities at UCLA and USC and Stanford and all of the, I mean, there was plenty of uh, stadiums there. It didn't cost them very much. We had a more difficult problem. Uh, but um, the decision to raise the money privately and not use any public funds was a decision that cleared me to uh, so to run. I mean, go for the Olympics with Billy Payne. And um, Billy, uh, Billy understood that uh, I didn't want to run the city up in debt. And he thought, that we could raise, we thought it was going to be about a billion dollars. And we figured we could raise that privately. Um, it turned out to be two and a half billion dollars. But we raised the two and a half billion dollars privately, no government funds. And we put on the Olympics and we had almost a hundred million dollars left over. So once I worked out the economics, getting the votes and putting the uh, event together, we you know we had the largest Olympics. I think it's the largest Olympics ever. We had more countries attending our Olympics in Atlanta than they had in either Russia or China or England or Japan. Uh, we we had um, the more athletes. Uh, and um, we sold more tickets privately. Um, Atlanta still holds the record for ticket sales for the Olympic I think, Games. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And so it was, but it was, you know, it, it was accumulation of a lifetime ambition of mine. So I didn't get to go to the Olympics, um, but I got to bring the Olympics to Atlanta at a time when Atlanta was just trying to become an international city. Uh, when I became mayor, Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, there was not much interest in, in cities. Uh, they were cut, cutbacks on government. And I decided to run for mayor because I thought I knew a little bit. I'd been on the banking committee in Congress. And I knew a little bit about uh, uh, about world finance. And George Schultz took a liking to me. He was the Secretary of the Treasury. And he took me with him to several of the World Bank meetings and International Monetary Fund. And he didn't like to go to, uh, he said, I don't like to represent the United States of America with an all white delegation. Would you mind? going with me whenever you could. And I said, I would be honored. And I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, and so I knew a little bit about how the world money um, institutions worked. And I figured that, uh, well, I'd been to Japan maybe three or four times. I'd been to Germany four or five times. Uh, and both of them were making more money at home than they could spend. 
or that they could invest. Japan has less land than Georgia, and uh, they 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 were bulging at the seams. Germany was outproducing all of the needs of Europe. And so my pitch to them was, and I just made pastoral calls, as I call them. And I went, I went to visit the companies in Germany. And because of, in Atlanta, everybody knows Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola has an office anywhere, everywhere in the world, practically. I go to my friends at Coke and I said, look, I want to take a delegation to Japan and introduce them to Atlanta and bring some business into Atlanta. And I did the same thing with Germany and with Italy and with Sweden and Norway, um, Holland. Uh, Holland was a big investor uh, in Atlanta. And we, we actually, in my term, two terms as mayor, um, we brought $70 billion in foreign direct investment into the city and we attracted 1,100 companies in eight, over eight years. And um, I mean, our, our population swelled from less than a million to almost, you know, three million, somewhere around three to four million. Now we're pushing close to six or seven million. Uh, but uh, we did become an international city, and the Olympics was sort of the anchor to that. What effect, what effect on today's Atlanta, beyond the physical uh, remnants of the game, some dormitories, some other sports facilities that were made? Is there an effect from those Olympics that we can still, you can still feel today? Well, everywhere we brought in a company, we brought in... Uh, a business family. <laughs> uh, so we really do have, uh, I think there must be close to 80 consulates representing various countries now. And so the consular court is one way in Atlanta that you can make contact with almost any place in the world. Uh, and um, and the money is still coming in. Now, that was accompanied also by being able to build the world's busiest airport, which we also built without any government funds. Uh, we, went, we couldn't get money from Washington during the Reagan years. So um, I met a friend of mine in New York, and he said, well, you don't have to go to Washington. You can come to Wall Street. We can give you all the money you need. <laughs> and so the Atlanta airport is built with Wall Street funds, not with Washington funds. We have no taxpayer money in the Atlanta airport. Uh, we don't pay any taxes and we don't collect any taxes. Uh, and um, it's, it's, a, it's almost a public nonprofit uh, that plows all of its money uh, back into the uh, development and expansion of the airport. And, it, and for the last almost 20 years, we've been the world's busiest airport. I mean, we, we've slipped around 
coronavirus 19, uh, we slipped in 2019. We went a little bit behind Beijing, but by 2020, we caught up and passed them, and um, and they're still trying to catch us. Uh, so we we have uh, we we've been blessed, and a lot of it came from. Well, I say growing going back to growing up in New Orleans, where if you grow up in a neighborhood that's Irish and Italian and German. And, and French and Creole and Asian and Black, um, you, you have no choice but to be a, a globalist. <laughs> I mean, I was, that, that, that's the way I, that's the way New Orleans is. And New Orleans has been that way since, uh, since you know, it began. They fought the Battle of New Orleans and ran Napoleon out. But kept him from coming in. Uh, do you think the Olympics are still relevant to twenty uh, first century life? Uh, or would they be? Are they relevant for if if Atlanta hadn't had the games in ninety six? Would they be a? Would Atlanta be a good candidate for the Olympics in this in this time? I think it would depend on the leadership, um, and. Billy Payne had a. Billy Payne was an all-American football player of Georgia, uh, who had a heart attack when he was 32. After a successful football career, and law career, uh, and he got involved in his church. And again, I'm a preacher, so the thing that convinced me that he was the right guy to work with was the fact that. After having a heart attack at 32, he spent the next four years raising money to build a new sanctuary for the Dunwoody Presbyterian Church. Uh, and it was his young adult commitment to the church that let me know that he was serious about that this wasn't just a game and it wasn't just, uh, you know, trying to do something to get personal credit or get rich, uh, that he really wanted, he really believed that the Olympics could make a contribution to the American South. And I did too. Uh, and so it would take somebody, it would take somebody with that kind of spiritual commitment to pull everybody together. It's hard to organize people. And, um, but me coming out of the civil rights movement, him coming out of University of Georgia, uh, we, we had a, a nice, uh, uh, and being the town of Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola didn't take a stand and didn't, didn't help us. I mean, they, they did not choose us financially. They tried to remain neutral. But uh, everywhere we went, we found somebody that knew Atlanta and that we could count on at the local level. 
and Coca-Cola certainly was part of that uh, that picture of Atlanta, at least. If they were not actively campaigning for Atlanta, just the presence of, of Coca-Cola was enough to uh, get you in the door. And see, we had Lockheed. Lockheed had sold uh, C-130s to some 60, 70 countries. Uh, and... The, they they are built in the Atlanta suburb of Marietta. That's right. So, and we we had we had a lot going for us. And by the time we started, we also had. Uh, see, we started bringing in companies from all over the world. Um, in the late seventies, and so by the middle eighties. We had 60-some consulates here uh, that gave us a most of, they had a dual loyalty to Atlanta and also to their, their countries. I mean, places that I wouldn't have ordinarily thought of, like Korea. But I think we probably got eight or 10 Korean companies here now, big ones. The uh, uh, turn, turning to a pretty serious and tragic situation we're dealing with uh, all of a sudden is the Russian incursion, the attack against Ukraine by Russia. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you have some very strong feelings about, about this act, but one of the consequences for Russia has been a, to be cut off from world sport, uh, Paralympic team is not allowed to compete in the Beijing Paralympics, which are underway right now. And uh, other sports organizations have been told by the IOC to cut off their relations with Russia. Which uh, is unfortunate, you know, because this is not the Russian people. We had a, we got most of the, there were 16 votes on the International Olympic Committee that somehow were related to the Soviet bloc. And I think we got all of those votes because I was also a part of something called the Friendship Force. And we took 3,000 Atlantans to Russia uh, in the 70s and uh, early 80s. And they paid their own way. Um, we went to, I called it Kiev back in those days, and Moscow. But our, our host uh, community was Soviet Georgia, uh, the city of Tbilisi. And so we took this. This was during the Gorbachev years. And... Um, for instance, I, I had a very good relationship with, uh, and I, I have got to admit that 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 I had been I had been at the United Nations uh, for three years, and um, I knew I knew people personally all over the world. Uh, the Russian ambassador and I played tennis every month. Us, you know, once or twice a month we'd play tennis. Uh, and um, his wife and my wife would 
we, we were friends. I never had a Russian veto. Uh, I never had a Chinese veto. Uh, this was a time when, uh, under President Carter, when America was well thought of almost everywhere in the world. And uh, we had great cooperation from everybody in the Caribbean when he went out after, you know, um, the Panama Canal Treaty. And he had been through the Camp David Accords that got Egypt and Israel. Uh, and, and everybody thought that that was crazy, but there's not been a single Egyptian killed by an Israeli in almost 60 years now. And nor has uh, an Egyptian killed an Israeli. Uh, and uh, those, those peace relationships uh, we we transformed southern Africa uh, and um, I had by the time I left the United Nations I think I had been to almost 50 of the 54 African countries uh, and had we had good relations so we got all of the African country block vote uh, and um, we were in doing well with uh, with just about everybody, uh, and uh, I still like to think of that Russia. Now Putin is another problem, um, and I think of him as a sick man, um, and. Uh, but I hate, I think the answer to Putin is going to be the combination of the Ukraines and the Russian citizenry. They're Russian citizens now, including the oligarchy that is his support. Uh, that's very uncomfortable with what he's doing uh, in Ukraine. And the threat that he's proposing, posing to the Russian economy and to uh, Europe uh, so that uh, it's an extreme tragedy, but it's one that I think, I think we will prevail. And I, 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 I'm not, uh, I don't know how, but I, um, one of my lessons from the civil rights movement was a quotation of Martin Luther King, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, for behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. And I don't, my experience with Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement was that nothing that we ever did succeeded the way we planned it <laughs> or the way we thought it was possible. It always happened some other way that we were led into and had not known or planned on. And um, one of my favorite books uh, is Leo Tolstoy's uh, Kingdom of God is within, 
uh, and um, it's uh, it was Tolst it was reading Tolstoy that led Gandhi to Jesus, and and led India to nonviolence, uh, and um, I come out of that uh, spiritual tradition that. Um, That makes me not so much an optimist as a, a believer that in the end, God will prevail and truth will prevail. It doesn't matter who says what now. Uh, I mean, we've seen this with our own former president. We've seen him go from hero to wherever he is now, I don't know. Uh, but he took half the country with him for a long time. Uh, but that's that's dwindling now. Putin has never had the kind of support. Well, he's never had the people's support in, in uh, Russia. I, how do you, how do you think Russia could ever shed its status as a worldwide pariah after something like this? Well, it would take another Gorbachev. See, it would take another. Uh, Who has to leave? You think? Yeah, and and what's the um, the the fellow that's in jail now? Gavalny. Navalny, yes. Navalny. Uh, he could get out of jail and he could rally the world behind Russia um, almost immediately. Um, and and I, I, I can see that happening. I don't know how, but uh, nothing that we ever did in the civil rights movement <coughs> happened the way we planned it. <laughs> And there was all there was always another spiritual dimension that we had not figured on that made us successful. And so whenever we got down and we we knew that we couldn't give up that as old folks would say, the Lord will make a way. I know he will. And it always it always happened in my ninety years. See, I've never been disappointed when I've been trying to do what's right. It's never been easy. It's always looked like we're on the verge of failure. But just when we, when we're on the verge of failure, uh, something happens that uh, transforms failure into a success. How 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 do you think? Uh... Dr. King would have uh, regarded the Olympics in Atlanta. Wouldn't he have been happy to see them here? Well, he would have been because um, this is something that nobody particularly thinks about with him. But when he was a little boy, his church, his daddy's church was three blocks away from the YMCA. So he spent most of his time in the gym and in the swimming pool and I mean, he grew up as a gym rat. 
and and he was, I mean, he, he was short, but he was very quick, uh, and he was a very good athlete, uh, and uh, played basketball, played ping pong, shoot pool, uh, and uh, baseball, uh, and um, and he he was he was a natural competitor. So it would have been a, a real delight for him. It too. would have been a real delight for him. How about your health, your energy as you look at 90 years this week? Uh, you, you'll, yeah. be, you, you'll be taking a turn in the pulpit. You'll be, you're preaching on Wednesday. Yeah, and I do every third Sunday in my church, the first congregational church in Atlanta, because... Um, well, my, my pastor uh, has a degree from Yale Divinity School, but he also has a Ph.D. in music from Yale. Uh, and he teaches music out of Emory. And um, he likes to be creative. The third Sunday in every month is what we call, well, we call it Jazz Sunday. And he said to me that... Uh, if you will take the preaching off my hands on the third Sunday, it'll give me a week to work with the musicians and we can try to, we have as much as we have going on preaching and teaching, we have a, 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 a lot of uh, modern music, jazz, the old spirituals, blending all of them together. Uh, and, uh, and, and he does a very good job with that. So I, I usually preach once a son, once a month. But you stay busy. You, 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 you're going to, uh, lots of events. You still travel some? A little bit. I, I tell you, I, um, on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, um, we went, we went halfway around the world and back several times that year before he was killed. He was being pulled in every direction, and most of those places I went with him. Uh, so that for the 50th anniversary, everybody wanted me to come back. Well, I did that kind of traveling when I was 35, <laughs> and it was no problem. But to do it at 50 years later at 85, I, um, I really became, well, when I was, when I was in New York with the UN, I picked up a staph infection that I thought had been cured. And as I traveled around the world and weakened, my condition, I, I just, I, I made it through the year, but the last event that I had, <coughs> I, I passed out and, and couldn't do it. And I was in the hospital for about six to eight weeks. And it turned out that that staph infection, which I picked up in a New York hospital, not in, in Africa, <laughs> uh, had not been completely wiped out and as my body weakened 
the staph infection got stronger. And so it, it just sapped all the strength out of me. And I, I have not been, up until that time, I was, uh, oh, I would swim, uh, I'd swim a quarter of a mile, you know, two or three times a week. And uh, I rode my bicycle from one end of the state to the other, I mean, two or three times. Um, and I played tennis regularly, uh, but then everything stopped and I have not, uh, I mean, I, I, I got rid of the virus, the disease. I did not catch the coronavirus, uh, but I've not been able to get myself back in physical condition to the point where I feel comfortable, I, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's what I decided I had to do after my 90th birthday, that I had to uh, kind of take some time off and um, at least get back to swimming. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I was on the swimming team in college and uh, stayed very active with the YMCA here. My brother and I grew up in the YMCA in New Orleans. And um, it uh, for my 75th birthday, I, I, I had a show off fundraiser. <laughs> I bet all my friends that I could swim 75 lengths of the pool, uh, which is a 25 yard pool uh, in an hour. And uh, if I was able to do that, they would have to pay so much a lap uh, to the Y. Uh, as a fundraiser, and I, I was able to make it. Uh, well, they stopped me after 50 laps and checked my blood pressure, and I was doing all right. So I still finished in my 75 laps in less than an hour. And um, but I don't. I haven't had that kind of drive or energy since uh, for the last two or three years, and. I couldn't get in back in the swimming pool. The worst place for a virus so, of any kind um, is a locker room. <laughs> well, I can I, I can testify to your to your your, your good exercise habits. Uh, when I moved to Atlanta in the middle 1980s, when you were mayor, I the first time I, I saw you was uh, at the uh, downtown athletic club uh, in the in the bowels of the old army there. Yeah, that was a great place. I miss that. Anyway, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, just before we go, just one more question again about the Olympics and its relevance, its importance today. It's the, the, the Olympics has its critics. They say it's bloated, irrelevant, not... Uh, an event for, for big corporations and not for the people who end up paying, the critics say, for, for these for the Olympics. Um, in this in these times that we live in, what what is the value, the importance of the Olympics as, frankly, a, as a worldwide event? Frankly, I consider myself a democratic capitalist. 
And I think that uh, that the way we developed Atlanta was um, not by taxing people to spend their money, but by putting together creative ideas like private business does. And then we sold bonds. Um, and with the Olympics and the airport and our new stadium here, um, they all qualify for tax-exempt municipal bonds. So if you can issue these tax-exempt municipal bonds, you can create, I mean, I would say the, the Olympics had a probably an eight to $10 billion impact on Atlanta, but it didn't cost Atlanta one penny. And I think we're still collecting money from the ideas and the people who came to know and love Atlanta because their experience in the Olympics. The, the city of Atlanta became a big family. I mean, they, they went out of their way. Uh, the, um, well, the Polish community right now is being very heroic. Well, I didn't know we had a Polish community in Atlanta. Uh, but when the Polish community came to visit Atlanta to see um, what they thought, the Polish community here said, look, not only do we want you to vote for Atlanta, but we want you to come back with your families. And when you bring your athletes, you can stay in our homes <laughs> for the two weeks that your athletes are here uh, and be our guests for free. See, and um, there was there was there was such international goodwill that was generated in this city uh, for everybody. Uh, I, I remember um, Afghanistan uh, came to. I mean, I, I didn't even know how they heard of me, but they were so grateful for what America had done for them, um, that they insisted on coming to my house and bringing me a hand-woven rug <laughs> as a souvenir of, of Afghanistan. Um, that, that I, uh, I developed friendships. There's hardly, hardly any place in the world now that I don't know somebody. <laughs> and um, the, the, the combination of the Olympics and all the other things I've done, I, I think I've visited 152 different countries. And that was before, that was when, when uh, uh, Soviet, Georgia, Uzbekistan, all of that was one country. Now, if I break those down, and, and when I went to Yugoslavia, it was one country, now it's five. If I broke down and to the well over 200. Uh, but 
just to make Atlanta citizens comfortable with the world in which we live. We have more students. The, the Georgia State University was a little school of uh, 400. It was a business school for night school students when I became mayor. Uh, it now has 53,000 students and they probably represent more than 200 countries. Uh, all of that is, I think, in, in some way attributable uh, to our involvement with the Olympics. And um, I just think that the concept of the Olympics is one world. Um, that was a book. That was one of the first books I read. It was by Wendell Wilkie. Uh, who was a Republican running against Franklin Roosevelt. But back in those days, in the early days, my parents were Republicans. <laughs> uh, and um, that happened to be the smallest book they gave me to read, so I read that one. <laughs> uh, but um, it, 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 um, that we have to live as, for me, one family under God. And I think the Olympics is one of the best ways of moving in that direction. I might not take us all the way there. There have been any number of instances of corruption and doping. Uh, but for every instance of doping by a country, uh, as they, I mean, how are you going to blame that little 15-year-old girl for some kind of pill that she took? that she probably had no understanding of what it was, and it, it just happened to be a banned substance, so she loses her medal. I don't blame the Olympics, and I don't even know whether I blame the, the Russian Olympic Committee uh, for letting that slide, you know, or for not catching that. But uh, um, there's nothing that brings as many people together for as positive a view of the planet than the Olympic Games. Well, Andrew Young, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. We've covered a lot of ground and it's just uh, fascinating to hear your connections to this, uh, this worldwide movement. Um, happy birthday to you and uh, wish you Many, many more to come. Well, I tell you, I've had a happy life, and it's it's uh, it's been a difficult life. It's been a dangerous life. It's been an exciting life, uh, but I loved every minute of it because uh, it seems to have worked out all right. And even with Martin Luther King, who only lived for thirty nine years, uh, I think. His assassination was not his end. Um, he is far more powerful a person now, uh, 57 years later, uh, at 93, uh, than he was when he was killed at 39. And um, because there is, well, Deepak Chopra says that uh, we think of ourselves as physical beings that have an occasional spiritual experience when it's quite possible 
that we are really spiritual beings and that this is an occasional physical experience. So that, um, again, it's a worldview that's very comfortable for me. Uh, and um, and it, it has worked for me for 90 years in, in very difficult circumstances uh, that I sought out. I mean, I could have escaped all of it. Uh, but going to Marion, Alabama, or Selma, Alabama, or St. Augustine, Florida, or, or even Atlanta when I first got here, the Klan was moving down, marching down Auburn Avenue. So, you know, but we've overcome a lot of that too. Not all of it, but uh, I don't think I'd live anywhere else in the world but Atlanta right now. Well, happy birthday once again. And uh, again, our, our great pleasure talking with you this day. Andrew Very Young. Good. God bless you. Well, thank you, sir. It was a good conversation. I, I, I feel blessed to have uh, spent the time with you like this. I may, uh, I may tr make the trek down to the southwest side of Atlanta to go hear you on Wednesday. Well, it, uh, it'll be downtown Atlanta is where our church is. It's going to be kind of hard to get in there, though. But it'll be, it'll be on... Um, it'll be streamed. Yeah, yeah it'll be streamed on YouTube. The problem we have now is that, uh, well, it, it's a combination of parking for our church in the middle of the week. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and the virus. So... We've, we've tried to limit it to people who have had, you know, triple testing and things like that. I don't, I don't know what, I tried to stay out of that. You're not in charge of that. Let somebody else yeah. handle that. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope, to, lot, though. Yeah, I hope to see you around sometime this week at uh, some of these events here. And okay, then. You have a very blessed birthday, sir. Thank you. Okay. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.